right, we are now joined by a very special guest, former MLB pitcher, pitching coach, and now the COO of Grand Central Sports Management, Dave Island. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Justin. How are you? Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to this one. Uh, There's so much to talk about, but I wanted to start with the work you're actually doing now over at Grand Central. Can you describe your role? I I know it's COO, baseball operations. It sounds so interesting. What what does a day-to-day look like for you? Well, I guess my official title is, is head of baseball operations. I don't know where the COO came in, but it's just head of baseball operations. First and foremost, I'm not an agent. I'm not going to be an agent. I have no desire to be one. We have very capable people doing that. Um, but it's something that, that um, I was approached with almost a year ago, February of, of 23, by Grand Central Sports President Jim Nichols. Talked to me about coming on board, doing something, and course i was with the marlins at the time and i i I wasn't really ready to uh to break free and come off the field you know being on the field for over 30 years it's it's hard just to turn around and and hang the uniform up and walk away from it but the conversation continued on through the summer and and um came to some sort of agreement uh well not some sort we did come to an agreement you know by the by august september joined him in september and um, it was something that I, I thought long and hard about because, like I said, my whole life I've been in uniform, been on the field e- either as a player or a coach. But uh, this company um, and what they're all about uh, was very intriguing and an offer I just couldn't turn down. With From ownership to the infrastructure in place, like I said, our, our, the president of Grand Central, um, Jim Nichols and, and his staff uh, are really, really good, good, uh, good organization, good company to be with. And and one that I'm proud to be with and honored to be the head of baseball operations for them. I love that. What was your experience like with agents and agencies when you were a player? Well, I had three of them. <laughs> um, and none of them really made any money off me, I can tell you that. But, uh, you know, I was with three of them. The first couple were big companies. And then, then the last one was uh, Tony Giordano. He was, you know, he was just kind of an, an, an on his own independent. He's actually with Grand Central as an agent now as well. Um, and it was more of a, uh, uh, a smaller family-like um, operation. That's kind of what we're doing here, too. And that's not to say we're only going to have, you know, minimal clients. You know, we're going to have as many clients as we feel uh, we need or, or we can take care of. But one thing we are going to do here is we're going to get, you know, specialized treatment. Each one of our clients are going to feel like they're the most important client. None of them are going to get lost in the shuffle. And not only are we looking for good baseball players, we're looking for good people as well. So um, we're off to a pretty good start. We have a, a pretty good client list now. Um, and that thing is going to build and grow and get better. Um, and we're definitely moving in the right direction. Like I said, with support of ownership and Jim Nichols and, and his staff, we're, we're really excited where this thing's going. I love that. It has to be so rewarding, especially working with guys as they start their professional career. What aspects of your job do you find rewarding? Well, you know, I mean, I've I've seen a lot. You know, you're you're not on the field for for thirty plus years, and and you don't go through some experiences. Not only myself, what I was through, went through as a player, as a coach, maybe what I saw a teammate go through, and then coaching for all the years I coach. You know, watching you know the ups and downs of, of the players and and really uh, getting, getting to know them and, 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 and how they have to navigate their careers, how I had to navigate my career. And now with the knowledge and wisdom I have from all, all the years in uniform, what I'm really looking forward to is, is helping our players navigate their careers, navigate the ups and downs, uh, getting them to the big leagues, which is very hard, obviously, as we all know, but staying there is even harder. And, you know, I walked in those shoes as well, you know, I've walked the floor many a night, you know, after a bad game or, or, or a bad week or a bad month and the weight of the world's on your shoulders. And all of a sudden that can flip right away, you know, that can, that can flip on a dime and now you're going good again. So it's just helping the players navigate their careers, the highs and the lows, keep them, keep them on that, that even keel, you know, keeping their head down, uh, focus on, focusing on what they can control um, and making life as easy on them as possible so they can be the best versions of themselves on the baseball field. That's so cool. It's been great to follow along with you guys. I, I know you guys are crushing it over there. So, um, you know, continued success in that regard. I wanted to take it back uh, to your playing days. And we talked about it just a second ago. Uh, I went back and looked. I was not around to watch you pitch, unfortunately, but it was the 80s. It was the 90s. It was these feared sluggers. It was that whole era you played in. What right. was it like pitching in that era? You know, it was tough. I mean, the, the big leagues are tough. Uh, regardless of, of 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 what area you pitch in, I mean, you're 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 facing as a pitcher, you're facing the the best hitters in the world. Uh, 
Um, you make a mistake, they make you pay. Uh, but looking back after the quote unquote steroid era and thinking about some of the things that went on, I, w- I won't mention any names. But I remember one time we were pitching on the road in Southern California. I won't mention the ballpark. Um, I threw a, 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 a backdoor slider down the way to a left-handed hitter. He lunged out and, and hit a, you know, just got, got the, got it with the end of the bat and I could hear the bat crack. I started fixing the mound thing. It was a lazy fly ball to left field. All of a sudden the crowd cheered. I looked up and the ball went over the fence. I mean, that doesn't, that, that doesn't make much sense. Uh, I didn't really realize at the time of the man, that guy's pretty strong, but looking back on it now, I know why. So that's, that's one example. Um, you know, guys were built like linebackers. They were big, strong, fast. And, um, but that's just the era we were in. And, and, you know, I, you know, I never did, uh, did steroids or anything like that, but I, I guess you could say it was, a, it was a level playing field because, you know, it, it, for major league baseball standards, anyway, it wasn't illegal. So guys weren't doing anything illegal back then, but to answer your question, it was tough. I mean, like I said, it's, it's tough to face, uh, big league hitters, uh, in general, but when they're, you know, they have, they have a little bit of help physically, then it makes it that much tougher, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. D- did you enjoy the competition part of it of facing some of these guys like a McGuire or a Juan Gonzalez? Like, did you enjoy like oh. the mental part of that part? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's how you measure yourself, right? You measure yourself against the best, you know, a lot of times they got me, but there's a few times I got them too. So yeah, that, that, that's what it's all about. It's the competition. I think that's, any professional athlete that that's, that's in our blood. We want to compete. I mean, hell, I want to compete now. You know, I want grand central sports to be the best sports agency on the planet. And I'm going to, in the baseball department anyway, you know, we have, not only do we have baseball, we have football and basketball as well. Who's really doing well too. But I want the baseball to be, you know, the best on the planet. So that there, there's competition there too. So um, that's, that's never going to leave us, um, you know, no, long, how, no matter how long we've been around or, 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 or what errors we went through or anything like that, you're a competitor. I think when you wake up in the morning, that, that's in your blood. You go compete. No matter whether you're going fishing, you're mowing the grass, you're playing golf, or, or you're out trying to find players and help players be the best version of themselves, you know, you're always out there competing. I love that. You mentioned that you got some of these guys. I'm wondering what's the most memorable at-bat of your career? Like who's the most memorable guy you got? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I faced them all. You know, I faced A-Rod. You know, then I coached him, but I faced him. I faced Jeter. I faced, you know, Frank Thomas, George Brett, Bo Jackson, um, Wade Boggs, uh, Barry Bonds. Faced them all. Um, you know, and it wasn't really, you know, looking back in my career, the, the guys that did a lot that probably hurt me the most and did damage were, weren't those big name guys. I think maybe I locked in a little bit a little bit, a little bit more of my concentration, a little bit better against those, you know, the big boys, not to say they didn't do some damage against me, but, you know, I know, I, I think probably the, the one that sticks out in my mind, I, I gave up Frank Thomas's first grand slam in the old Yankee stadium. So I guess that's, you know, that's one, that's not really one I'm proud of, but I, I can just remember, you know, um, getting all the, you know, a rod, uh, getting him to roll over, getting Barry Bonds to roll over a little bit, you know, Ken Griffey to pop up to shallow left field, um, so I don't know if there's any memorable, really, uh, memorable at bat that sticks out against some of the bigger names. Um, but, um, you know, it was, it was an honor to be there. It was a privilege to be there. I probably was never supposed to make it, but I, but I did. I spent parts of 10 seasons there. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. But like I said, you know, I had to scratch and claw and, and to get there and, and, and every day that I spent there, it was, you know, it was a grind. It was a lot of hard work, but looking back on it, I'm, you know, it wasn't a great career, but but it was a career, and I was proud of it, um, and, I, and I'm still proud of it. So, um, probably the coaching career was probably a little bit better for me, but you know, being able to spend over 20 years in the big leagues combined as a player and a coach is something that nobody can ever take away from me, and I'll, I'll always have that. Absolutely. I actually wanted to go next into your coaching career. So after playing, of course, you you shifted into the next phase. I'm wondering though, was there a coach from when you were playing that like? said something that really resonated with you or had like a biggest effect on you when you eventually decided to go and become a coach? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there were a few, but, but the one that sticks out in my mind was the late Billy Connors, who was, he was my pitching coach for the Yankees. He, he was a pitching coach for several, uh, several big league teams around the game for a long time. Unfortunately, Billy's no longer with us, but the one thing he always pounded in my head, and, and instilled in me was just keep it simple. The game is complicated enough. Just keep it simple. 
um, the basics, uh, you know, be fundamentally sound, the basics as far as your delivery, your arm slot, um, just keep things simple and don't over, overthink things. And once I got into coaching, that's, that's something that I really, you know, hammered in the, in the heads of my players was just to keep it simple. Don't overthink it. Don't over-exaggerate it. Don't try and over-manipulate the, ba the baseball. Trust your ability and trust your stuff and have confidence in yourself. But keep things simple. I mean, this is a when, – when you, you know, we can talk about all the analytics and the data that's in the game now, but you're still dealing with human beings, and you just have to keep it simple. Um, and focus on what you can control. And I think that's really what Billy instilled in me at a very young age. And I tried to give that back when I was a coach as well. Really solid advice. Did you play for Buck Showalter back then with the Yankees? I actually played for Buck Showalter my first year in pro ball, in, in A ball with the Fort Lauderdale Yankees. And then I played for him briefly when he managed the Yankees, 95 maybe. Yeah, 95. I, I, I was up and down a few times and, and played for Buck then. Great baseball mind probably one of the best in-game managers this game has known. So it was an honor to play for Buck, you know, my first year in pro ball. He was a young manager then as well. Um, but you could just tell he was a, a great baseball mind, a great strategist. And that, that proved to be true in, in the last 30 plus years for him as a manager. Absolutely. I'm an Orioles fan. That's why I brought that up. That's he, what, like in the early days of him managing, did you notice that like was so different and allowed him to, you know, to, three-time manager of the year managed for 20 plus years you know uh he paid attention to detail he didn't miss a thing he didn't miss a thing he was always thinking ahead a very forward thinker um you know he stayed two three innings ahead of, of the manager any other dugout uh a situation couldn't and didn't arise in a game that he wasn't prepared for and you could just see that with him uberly prepared paid attention to detail and he was never caught off guard or caught by surprise with anything that happened in game that's the best. Yeah, I, I'm a huge Buck Walter guy. Um, what advantages and disadvantages did being a former player have on your coaching style? Um, I don't think there were any disadvantages. I mean, hey, listen, I mean, you you learn from the people that come before you, right? Um, you know, I learned, I learned how to do the right thing from a lot of people, but I also had a few coaches that I learned how not to do things too. Um, but for the most part, it was a positive experience. You know, I I take I took a little bit away from from each coach I was around, each manager I played for, uh, teammates. Uh, you know, you watch the game, you pay attention. You know, the, the, the days you're not pitching, you pay attention to the game. You know, you're. I tried to pitch every game. When the, the day I wasn't pitching, I tried to pitch every game right along with my teammate out there. What would I throw in this situation? How would I pitch to this hitter? How would I set this guy? Runner in scoring position, depending who was up. You know, how would I pitch that guy? Um, and, but and so you had to pay attention and. You know, I wasn't the most gifted pitcher in the world, but I, I really paid attention. I had to work hard. I, I had to pay attention to detail, too, and, and really think about the, the, the little things, make sure my mechanics were always clean. I always repeated my arm slot, you know, uh, pitch according to the score, pitch, pitch to my defense, and pitch to the situation. So um, I think that really, really benefited me when, when I got into the coaching side of things. Absolutely. One thing I'm curious about when you first started as a minor league pitching coach um, is trying to find a balance between, I'm assuming the organization kind of has these things that like they have an idea when they take somebody in the draft or sign them that like they're trying to maybe mold them into what the organization needs. How mm -hmm. did you kind of balance that like organizationally with also to, like trying to help each guy be the best version of themselves they could be? Yeah, obviously there's, you know, there's a, there's a, a player development plan for, for, for every player. Right. And you have to follow that, but you also put your own personal touch on a player. Um, you know, I was, I was brought up, you know, drafted and brought up in the Yankee system as a player. And I was brought up in the Yankee system as a coach. And like I said, I had Billy Connors of the world. I had Martin Newman, um, Nardi Contreras, gosh, you know, Bucky Dent was there. Some of the old time Yankees, I was able to be around Goose Gossage for a while. Even Whitey Ford, you know, my first couple of years, he was in, in, in spring training, Catfish Hunter, you know, kind of showing how old I am dating myself there, but you know, you, you, you were allowed then, maybe not so much now, you were allowed then, you know, you follow the organizational plan, but you also able to put your own personal touch on guys too, staying within the realms of what the organization wants you to do. So, um, and like I said, I, I learned from a lot of great people that came before me um, and I continue to learn as I move throughout my career. We interrupt this episode to bring you a word from two apparel sponsors of this podcast. The first is Zero Negative. They are a brand out to inspire and empower individuals to find a positive message in everything they do every time. They promote positivity and mindfulness in all of their products, 
Check them out at zeronegative.com. And last but not least, Few Will Hunt. It's one of my favorite brands out there. It's a great American company out of Philadelphia, out to restore the dignity of hard work. It is by far my favorite shirt to work out in. Check them out online at fewwillhunt.com. Now back to the episode. What differences did you find between being a coach at the minor league level and the major league level in terms of like the interaction with the guys? I was reading about in the Yankees system when you were the minor league pitching coach, like, you know, you spent a lot of time with, you worked with some of these guys that like, like Jabba and Phil Hughes, like what, what were the differences between getting guys when they first get in the organization versus, you know, having a veteran group at the big league level? Well, regardless of, of either of those situations, you have to get to know the pl- the person, you have to get to know the player. Um, you know, there's an old saying, they don't, they don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. So you have to get them to know people. You have to get them to know first and foremost as people. And then you get them to know, uh, them as a player. You, you have to get inside their, their, their head a little bit, get inside their bodies, find, find out what makes them tick, how they think, how they react in, in certain situations, you know, lower leverage situation, higher leverage situations, learn what kind of heartbeat they have. Uh, but I think first and foremost, you have to, you know, like in anything, you have to forge a relationship with the person and then you move on to that, that him as a player. Uh, and I think so that that was the first step. But, you know, in the minor leagues, it's more of a development. You know, you're you're trying to win games you're, and, you're, and you're pitching and playing to win. But first and foremost, you're developing, too. Now, when you get to the big leagues, it's win at all costs. Right. You know, you're, you're chasing a, a W every night. In the minor leagues, you want to win because winning is part of development. But the, the player himself is in is in the developmental stage. So, you know, you might have to go out and you know, and I, I might have to you know dictate. Okay, every time you get uh, a one ball count on a hit or a one ball strike, you have to throw a changeup. You know, in the big leagues, it's you know you throw the kitchen sink. You if you got to throw stand on your head and throw it between your legs and get a guy out, that's what you do. So that's the difference. You know, really the big difference between minor leagues and the big leagues. In minor leagues, it's it's more about the development of the player and finishing off his development before you send him to the big leagues. In the big leagues, it's pitching to win and win at all costs. One thing I've always heard when it comes to that is like you have to be a pitcher, not a thrower. I'm wondering what that phrase means to you, and like how did you help throwers become pitchers? Well, I mean, you know, and, and now the game, it seems they're all throwers now, right? You know, throw as hard as you can up in the zone and spin a breaking ball in the dirt. You know, I think, you know, pitching is an art. It's always going to be. But I think it's kind of a, a lost art now with where we're at in the game. And, you know, everybody's overwhelmed and, and uberly focused on velocity and spinning a breaking ball in the dirt. Again, that's why you're seeing so many injuries, in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinion. You know, the art of pitching has kind of faded away right now because everybody is, is so consumed with velocity. But, you know, it's you start with fastball command. You know, command your fastball to both sides of the plate. Be able to throw a breaking ball, at least one breaking ball and a changeup for strikes when you're behind in the count. Um, you know, not 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 being predictable in the location of your pitches, not being predictable in certain counts. You know, you're not always going to throw a breaking ball one and one. You're not always going to throw a fastball three and one. So, you know, it's uh, it, it, first and foremost, for me, it's command. You have to command the baseball and you have to be able to use both sides of the plate with your fastball. And then you mix in your secondary pitches. So, you know, for me, that's that's, you know, that's pitching. I mean, you go back and you you. You, you pull up video uh, of all the great pitchers, you know, the Maddox, the Glavin, the Schillings, the Pettits, and, you know, on and on and on. And you they pitched. They didn't throw. They pitched. And, you know, you really don't see that a whole lot now, which is a bit disturbing to me, but that's just where we're at in the, in the game right now. I was reading an article and it mentioned like kind of like your philosophy. And I wanted to talk more about that with you. Um, it was, I think it was having to do with, maybe it was when you were at the Mets about trying to get guys to not be afraid to throw the ball inside and throw the ball up and in, just really get the hitters to back off the plate a little bit. I'm wondering if that's right. If that did, if I remember that correctly. And also just like where that philosophy was kind of honed over time. Like, how did you come? Like, was that from personal experience? Like, how did you kind of, you know, work on your philosophy pitching wise? personal experience and I guess how I was raised in the game you know uh, the the hitter needs to fear the pitcher you know the pitcher's the one with the ball you know uh maybe now there's you 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 really can't you know you throw one inside now the the, the hitter backs up and he stares at the mountain the, the umpires warm both benches and it kind of takes the inside part of the plate away but you know you had that ball in your hand that was a license to be a jerk right 
you know, you could you can throw, you, know, you can back a guy off the play, you can throw up under his chin. I was never a proponent of throwing at guys and hitting guys. You know, you can ruin somebody's career and quite frankly ruin somebody's life if you're actually throwing at guys. Um, but you had to pitch in. You, you had to let hitters know that that you would come in inside off the plate so they couldn't dive out there and get the good pitches on the out, outside part of the plate because, you know, if you just stay on the outside part of the plate, hitters going to get up on the plate, and their first movement is going to be to step towards the plate so they can get to those outside pitches. But if they have a fear of you throwing in and in off the plate, they're not going to be very comfortable going out and getting those good pitches, pitches on the outside part of the plate. Is a fastball up and in, you think, the most effective pitch out there? Um, I think if you do it more than once, I think you have to, I think you, you, you know, we used to talk all the time about move, move a hitter's feet, just throw it in. So he has to move his feet and get out of the way. Um, you know, like I said, I'm not a big proponent of throwing up around the head, maybe up yep. around the letters, up under the elbows at the waist. We just back the hitter off the plate, make him move his feet. And, you know, <laughs> they're all human beings, right? They don't want to get hit with a 90 plus mile an hour fastball. It doesn't feel good. That, that's, you know, that's just human nature to get out of the way. Um, so you have to strike fear in the hitters that you, you have to let them know that you're going to not only going to pitch in, but you're going to pitch in off the plate. I love that. I wanted to ask about uh, a player. I think you played with even coach too, who was a big proponent of, you know, breaking bats, you know, jamming guys. It was Mariano Rivera. Um, that's mm-hmm. just like, you know, you, th- you talk about a pitcher. Um, like, what was it about Mo that you noticed that like allowed him to have like that kind of success for so long? Like what, what separated him? Was it like preparation mindset, like how he took care of himself? Like, how can you kind of, you know, sum that all up with Mo? All of the above. I mean, he had, you know, he had just impeccable command. He, he threw one pitch, he threw one pitch, a cutter, but he could throw it anywhere he wanted up and in to down and away, down the way to back up and in, you know, back door, back door, the cutter to lefties. Um, you know, he could just, he could, he, he had just his command. It was just precision. It was surgical precision where he went. And the ball had so much late movement on it. The hitters would see it in one spot. And by the time it got to the, across the plate, it was six inches away of where they saw it, you know, a foot in front of the plate. So it was command. It was command and movement with Mo. And also just, you know, he had ice water in his veins. It was never a moment too big for him. I remember numerous times making a mound visit in big situations, not necessarily because he was struggling or he was in trouble, but maybe just, you know, to slow the game down a little bit or talk strategy or, or whatnot. And he would just look you right now and goes, I got it, boss. I got it. And it was just, you know, he believed in himself. Um, you know, he, 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 he was fearless and uh, the command um, and just, you know, we're, we're never going to see another one like him. That's, that's so cool. I, I was reading about how he picked up the cutter. I, I think it came later on. I don't think he initially had that. Um, I think it was maybe like an experimental kind of working on, working on it off to the side kind of thing. Um, did you encourage guys to kind of do that same kind of thing to experiment, to try different stuff? Well, sure. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're always trying to, to, to improve. You're always trying to better yourself. You know, I played with, I played with Mo in the minor leagues and the big leagues a little bit. I was a team and he was a starter. You know, he went, people forget, he went to the big leagues a couple different times as a starter and had to get sent back down. You know, he finally found his niche when they put him in the bullpen to set up for John Wetland back in 95. Um, you know, he, he had a little slider as a starter, a little change up, but there, there really wasn't much to it, just mostly fastball. And I, I, I forget how the story goes. I wasn't, I wasn't with him when he picked up that cutter, but he just, he just took his four-seam fastball and just, and just turned his hand a little bit, boom, and there it was. You know, the rest is history. Now, not everybody can do that. You know, you, you have to have feel, you, know, you have to have talent, you know, be, you, his, his delivery was rock solid. His mechanics was, were, were, were impeccable, obviously, you know, that's what direct correlation with, with his command, but, you know, just an uberly talented guy, you know, and that one pitch. And, and like I said, I, I know I'm in my lifetime, I'm never going to see another one like him. And I doubt anybody will, else will after me. Oh yeah, no doubt. You, you work with so many like legendary pitchers in the Bronx, like, you know, like we just talk about Mo and CC and Pettit, like guys at the top of their games, were they receptive to like change or were they coming to you for advice? What was the back and forth like when you have guys, you know, deep into their major league career? Well, I tell you what I found in coaching is all the great players want to be coached. They all want information. They want to get better. You know, what do you got for me? What do you have? What did you see? And I can say that you mentioned those three guys, CC and Andy, and Mo, you know, they they wanted confirmation. Wait, what'd you see? What'd you see? How'd it look? What'd you see? And they wanted they wanted to know what you saw. They wanted to know what you 
what are you saying? What can I do to be better? Um, you know me when I'm, I'm at my best. And what, you know, you tell me what you see. And like I said, you know, all, all, all the great players want to be coached. They want information. They want feedback. So there was never an issue with any of those guys as far as me being a young pitching coach or me playing with Andy, me playing with Mo in the minor leagues. There was nothing about, oh, he was a teammate. We don't have to, those guys were professional. That's why they have each of them have three, four, five, you know, championship rings because they're pros. You know, they're very, you know, all, all the great ones are very coachable. Like I said, they want information. They're very respectful, not only of you as a person, you as a coach, but the position you have. So there was never an issue uh, with any of those guys or, or anybody I coached for that matter. For the, for the 11 years, I was a big league pitching coach. I, I really didn't have problem with, uh, with anyone. I mean, sometimes there were disagreement, disagreements along the way, but having a problem with a guy, I, I, I never experienced that. That's awesome. You are, you were a part of, of two world series uh, winning teams there, the Yankees and the Royals. I'm wondering though, in each of those seasons, was there a point where you could sense that something was different about this team? Like you're looking around and you're like, I think I'm feeling this. Well, you know, with the Yankees in 09, you know, we didn't make, we just, we I think we won 88 or 89 games uh, in 2008. We didn't make the playoffs, you know, so that off season, you know, Cashman and his crew went out and got Sabathia, um, AJ Burnett and Mark Teixeira. We knew we had a good team, but we weren't really playing that well um, uh, up to our talent level, I should say. I guess it was early June. We were, we, were, we were in Atlanta for an interleague series, and we had a big meeting. Cashman flew down and met with the team. Joe met with the team. Everybody spoke, and it was like, hey, we're good. You know, we're good. This team was assembled to win a championship. Just go out and relax and be who you are and let your natural abilities take over and trust one another. And let's, let's turn this thing around. And we did. We were pretty much unstoppable after that. Um, with the Royals, you know, winning it in 15, you know, we lost to the Giants in, in seven games of the World Series the year before. Everybody showed up in spring training in 2015. Their, their eyes were bleeding. And it was just, we're going to win the damn thing this year. We were, everybody was so upset and mad, you know, that, that we were 90 feet away from winning it in 14. You know, we weren't going to be held back uh, in 15. And we kind of went wire to wire there. Uh, well, I think we won 95 games and, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say we cruised to the playoffs in the World Series, you know, Toronto gave us fits and ALCS and, you know, the Mets, we kind of, we kind of handled them uh, in the World Series, but you know, what, what that team did, they, they believed in themselves and they believed in one another and they trusted one another and they knew you're only as good as the guy next to you. Um, and that was the approach they took, but it was just like, that that team wasn't going to be denied how close they came the year before they showed up in 15 and they just weren't going to be denied dang the uh those royals teams were so much fun to watch uh i had a question because eric hosmer just retired um and he's like one of my favorite players when i when he was playing like what do you remember about like Haas and just like watching him for all those great those great years in kansas city great teammate number one obviously a talented talented player but a great teammate great leader um gamer you know he showed up every day played every day you know just a gamer um it was a bit it was a bit sad for me seeing that announcement you know a couple of days ago that he retired but i mean heck he's you know he just shows you how, how how fast time flies right but he had a great career i mean there's a lot of reasons we went to two world series in 14 and 15 and why we won in 15 and the big reason was eric hosmer um just his leadership uh, his stability what he brought, the good teammate, how he brought out the best in, in, in guys around him. Just a great, great person, great player, great leader. Um, but he was the only one on that team, but, but, but he was at the forefront of that. He's the best. We, we actually had him on this podcast and he talked about kind of like the Kauffman stadium effect for how those Royals teams were built. It was like, you know, all catered to Kauffman stadium. It was like speedy outfielders, defense, like small ball. I'm wondering though, from the pitching side, what did that guy, what did that look like for you guys? Was like pitching to contact something that was like not okay because you never want to give up hits, but like what, what was the coffin stadium effect like back then for those pitchers? Trust your defense, you know, pitch to contact, put the ball in play. I mean, I don't care if you're playing in Coffin Stadium or you're playing in, in the new Yankee Stadium with a short porch and right or playing in Fenway with the, you know, the, the, the wall in left field or, you know, it's you, you still, you, you can't ever pitch away from contact. Uh, but we did you know, pitch a contact, attack the zone. We knew we had a good defense. Uh, we knew the outfielders could run the ball down in the outfield. The thing was, we had a shutdown bullpen. 
you know, I, I would challenge everybody to go back and look. You know, we started that bullpen, that shutdown bullpen craze towards the end of 13 and 14 and into 15. Other teams knew if we got to the fifth inning with a lead, the game was over because you weren't going to score off our bullpen. But we weren't looking like a lot of teams now. They can't wait to get the starting pitcher out of the game so they can go to their bullpen. But Ned, Ned Yost, the manager, and I back then were like, hey, we're, we're going to go to the starter as long as we can. We'll get him through four. What do you think? Yeah, send him back out. Get him through fifth. Hey, what do you think? Send him back out. You know, every out counts. And sometimes we say, well, we get him through five. We're in good shape. Sometimes you look up, he's into the seventh. So now we don't have to use, you know, we only have to use maybe two relievers instead of three or four. So that, that sets us up even stronger the next night. So, you know, we, but we had five guys down there that were just, you know, they all could have been closers for a different team. And it was just a lockdown bullpen. Like I said, the psychological advantage, I think, too, over other teams, because they knew they had, they had to get the lead by the fifth inning or the game was over. I remember that all too well, especially the 2014 ALCS that as an Orioles fan, again, that was, I still remember that bullpen. I was like, that's it. You know, that's Greg Holland, Wade Davis, Kelvin Herrera. Right. Who ever you you couldn't, you couldn't touch those guys. So that was, that was demoralizing from even a fan's perspective. We interrupt this episode to bring you a word from the official sponsor of not for long media and the breaking bats podcast, the original fudge kitchen. It is a staple of the Jersey Shore with six locations in Cape May, Wildwood, North Wildwood, Stone Harbor, and Ocean City. The original Fudge Kitchen makes all of their fudge in-store guaranteeing a delicious product, so stop by and let them know that Not For Long Media and Breaking Bats sent you. Check them out online at fudgekitchenswithans.com as they are shipping fudge and sweet treats all across the country. Now back to the episode. I had a question, though, because you had so much success, especially in Kansas City, with like taking pitchers from other organizations who would come in and I don't want to say like revitalizing their career because some of them had great careers before that, but just like maximizing the efforts and the, you know, getting the most out of these guys. I'm wondering like, what was your process when you would get like a free agent or you would trade for somebody you're, you're starting fresh with a brand new guy. Like how did you help some of these guys get the best out of their careers? Well, well, first thing we do, you know, a reliever really only needs two really good pitches, maybe three. You know, we, I'll give you a perfect example with Wade Davis. We transitioned him to the bullpen. You know, we got him him and James Shields in that trade before the 13th season. Wade was a starter. We finally shifted him to the bullpen into 13, first to 14. And we had five pitches. Okay, Wade, four-seam fastball, breaking ball, and your cutter. Go get them. So what happens? You command those three pitches better than you did before when you had five. Your velocity is going to tick up a few miles an hour. Get in the stretch, just solely pitch out of the stretch. You don't need two deliveries with the wind up in the stretch. And 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 keep it simple and go on the attack with those three pitches. We did the same thing with Luke Hoche was a starter. Switch him over to the bullpen. Um, get in the stretch, take your three best pitches, go with that, get on the attack. Um, we got Ryan Madsen, who, you know, who was a reliever his whole career. We got him. He gosh, he didn't pitch for two or three years, and we got him, and he's making a comeback put him in a bullpen, protect him a little bit till he got his legs up underneath him a little bit and got strong and turned him loose. So, uh, again, going back to the, the, the advice I got from Billy Connors back in 1989, keep it simple, trust your ability, trust your stuff. And that's what, that's what we did, pitch the contact. And, and um, you know, it, it, it works, and it works to this day. I uh, just think about those Royals teams and those Royals pitchers, a thought popped in my head, again, as a Royals fan, like Bruce Chen, uh, when you when you had Bruce Chen, was he one of the funniest people you've been around? Because I've heard that like his like jokes and his dad's sense of humor was was unmatched. Yeah, he was he was uh, quite fun to be around. But I, I tell you what, we go back to what we we're speaking about a pitcher. He was the epitome of a pitcher. 84, 85 miles an hour fastball, a couple of different breaking balls, different arm angles, change up, throw any pitch at any time, commanded all of his pitches to both sides of the plate. A pitcher. That guy was the best. I, I, yeah, I've grown up as like a little kid. I was like, you know, oh four, oh five, started watching baseball. I'm like, I love this Bruce Chen guy. That's, that's so cool. Um, the, you use the phrase, keep it simple. And I read an article about your time with the Mets and Jacob deGrom. You know, the first year you got there, he wins as Cy Young. I'm wondering, like, what did keep it simple look like with deGrom when you first got to the Mets? Well, obviously, Jake is one of the most talented pitchers on the planet. You know, uh, when he's right and he's healthy. I mean, he's arguably the, probably the, you know, some of the best stuff. But when I got there, his delivery was a little not quite there yet. He threw hard. He threw up in the zone. He really couldn't command the bottom of the zone really that well. Would get under his slider a little bit. He was late to his arm slot. First thing we did, we cleaned up his delivery. 
and he could always pitch up in the zone. But now we got him to start pitching down and away, then go up and in. He wasn't afraid to pitch inside. His secondary pitches were ridiculous with the slider at 92 to 93, the changeup. He had a really good curveball. He had a plus curveball. He never had. He never used. It. He didn't have to use it. Plus, he just cleaned his delivery up. And he's such a good athlete and such good aptitude. You you suggested an adjustment physically. He could make it mentally. He could make it. And then his natural ability takes over. Um, but yeah, just, you know, trust your stuff, you know, use your fastball to both sides of the plate, you know, use your fastball down and away to up across, mix in your secondary pitches and go have some fun. And that, that's what it was. I've always heard with him too. Cause he's, he's like a Southern guy. Like, do you think keep it simple really resonated with him just from like his persona and how he operates? Like, do you think that working Absolutely. with him? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Again, what I stated earlier in our conversation was told Jake, you know, I think Jake will tell you this day. I think one of the big things that resonated with him for me was don't overcomplicate things. You know, now we're kind of getting into that, that part, that era of the game where all this data is coming in and all this information is coming in, but don't let it muddy your mind and cloud your cloud, your, your, your train of thought. We use it and we're going to use what we need to use. We're going to throw the rest of it out and don't overcomplicate. Don't let it overcomplicate you keeping it simple on the mound, trusting your stuff and your God-given ability. I'm a big DeGrom guy. A lot of people are doubting him, though. You know, he's coming back later this summer. He's coming off injury. He's in his late 30s. I mean, do you think he's he's going to go out there and still continue to you know be you know, prove people wrong this summer? No doubt about it. Again, talking, being a competitor, I mean, he's, you know, I, I've been around a lot of them. I'm not going to say one. A lot of these guys that I was around the big leagues, either I coached or I was teammates, so, oh, he's the best competitor I've, I've ever seen. I don't think you can tag any one person with that. But he's right there with all those other guys. And, you know, he's, you know, Jake takes great pride in proving people wrong, which is a great trait to have. I would not bet against Jake DeGrom. I would not, I would not doubt him. He's hungry. I know he wants to live up to that contract he signed out there. You know, he wasn't a he wasn't able to pitch in the world series of the playoffs last year due to injury. I know he wants to get back to doing that. So I would just warn people not, not to doubt him. I think he's going to get back to where he was prior to the injury and goodness sakes, he's got a brand new elbow. He's got a brand new elbow. So he should be fine. So I know he's probably working hard. He's chomping at the bit to get back out there and compete and, and, and to be there for his teammates. So it's going to be fun watching from afar, how that, how that goes for him. That whole Texas team, I think Scherzer's in that same boat late summer, kind of middle of the year return. I mean, can, can you imagine down the stretch? I mean, that like one, two of DeGrom and Scherzer. I mean, that's going to be incredible. Yeah, like I said, you know, it's it's you know, it's going to be fun to watch from afar. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, uh, enthralled with what I'm doing now. But, you know, I still keep I, you know, I'm still a fan of the game. It's in my blood. Right. I'm always going to be a baseball guy. I'm always going to be a former player, former coach. Um very, very passionate about what I'm doing now, but it's going to be fun to keep an eye on on teams like that. And I tell people all the time, I'm not really a fan of any one team, even in football. I'm a big football fan, not really a fan of one one particular team. It's just I like I like watching uh, good players compete against one another. So Texas is going to be one with with the Jake and the Max thing to certainly keep an eye on. So good. Uh, I had a couple of last kind of like big picture, like you know, big picture game stuff. Um, so as a pitching coach, you mentioned this before, like the analytics, it obviously has exploded the last couple of years. And, you know, we've talked all about like helping guys keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate. I'm wondering how did you help guys sift through? Cause all the numbers and there's so many things available out there. Like how did you help pitchers sift through all that and choose what to focus on? Well, I mean, again, get to know the player, get to know how much information do you want? What do you want? What, what do you need? You know, I think I have a pretty good idea what they need or what they should have preparing themselves to go in a game. Um, but you ask them, what do you need? How much information do you want? Some guys, some guys go, give me everything you got. Other guys will go, I don't want anything. Other guys will go, well, just give me whatever you think. Give me a little bit, but it's getting to know the player. I mean, you know, uh, Jacob DeGrom wouldn't want anything. Uh, Jerry McGuthrie in Kansas City would want everything you had. So uh, Danny Duffy would want nothing. So you, know, you got to get to know the player, but, but there is valuable, there is valuable information out there, but that's what it is. It's just information. It's not the be all cure all. It is information. So you have to be very careful what you give them, what you don't give them and engage the players, see what they want, how much they want. And, and you let them look at it all. And some of them are going to like it and want to really take a deep dive into it. And some of them are just going to want to keep it very simple. We've had a debate on this podcast about, there's like in, in recent years, they've like tried to rename pitches or just like come up with completely new ones. 
Uh, the big one is obviously the sweeper. Right. I'm wondering, do you believe that the sweeper is a separate pitch? And where do you kind of fall when people are trying to come up with new names for stuff? Sweeper's a flat slider, okay? But it's we it, it used to call it the Frisbee. Go back and look in, in the late 80s, early 90s, Dave Steed of, of, the, uh, of the Blue Jays. He threw probably the best sweeper you'll ever see, but they <laughs> called it the Frisbee type slider. It had deception and it has a big, you know, it, it has a big lateral break to it. There's not, it's not that short darting slider that has some depth. It's just, it's a big one, but guys are really getting around the baseball now and starting it off the plate, just sweeping it across. But, you know, you should call it out. Just get up, get under, get under and around your slider a little bit and make it a little bit bigger. That's what we used to call it. Just make your slider bigger. Now all of a sudden it's a sweeper. Somebody's somebody's reinventing the wheel again, right? It's a sweeper, but just get up under your slider and pull it across and make it a little bit flatter. That's what it is. <laughs> there's so many of them. Yeah. Especially for breaking balls, there's always like eight different ways to call it. And it's always just like, I feel right. like that's either a curveball or a slider. I don't know how many variations well, there are. I tell you, there's not a lot of true curveballs and true sliders left. I, I call them breaking balls. They're slurs. They're part sliders, part curveballs. You know, they're not that 12 6 curveball or that late darting depthy slider it's more of a it's more of a slurve but it's effective you know it's, it's still a two-plane pitch and it's effective uh but again they call it tunneling we used to call it have it want everything to come out of your hand looking like your fastball and if you do that you call it whatever you want you're, you're going to have success who had the best uh traditional curveball of all the guys that you either like played with or coached oh gosh way day i mean i don't know uh <clears throat> too many to name i mean you know, DeGrom, I, I consider say DeGrom slider. I mean, it's 93-94, right? Um, Bruce Chen had a good curveball. Danny Duffy had a good curveball. I mean, the list goes on and on. Pettit had a good one. Uh, the list goes on and on. Um, but it's the ones that could pitch off their fastball with it and throw it when they were behind the count, not, not just up in the count. And again, being able to throw your secondary pitches in any count, especially when you're behind in the count, you're going to have a lot of success if you're able to do that. I love it. My last question is last season in baseball, we saw several high profile ejections for sticky stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, I feel like that's really taken off the last couple of years. I'm wondering what's your take on all that. And also in a broader sense, why, why can hitters use all sorts of stuff, but pitchers can only use rosin. I've never understood that. Good question. I've asked that myself. Well, I mean, pitchers should be able to use whatever the hitters can use. The hitter can use whatever they want to get a better grip on the bat. How come pitchers can't use whatever they want to get a better grip on the ball? But I do know if you have, any type of really sticky substance on your hand. I don't know whether it be uh, call it what you want, what they, they call all this stuff now, but pine tar, for example, you can really get a good break, a good grip on, on, on the baseball and really spin your curveball really good and stay behind your fastball. Um, it, it, it gives you a better grip. Uh, you know, it doesn't make the ball move any better. I mean, that's kind of, that's now you're talking about spitballs, right? But, but uh, all this sticky stuff makes, you know, especially in cold weather when there's not much moisture, the ball feels real slick. Uh, you know, you, you need some of that. But it just it helps you command the baseball better, maybe spin your breaking ball a little bit better and give you a better grip. A lot of hitters I talk to, they would rather guys use that than have a slippery ball and be able to get away from it. Now they're taking one in the ear hole. So, <laughs> you know, when they do use the sticky stuff, you know, the hitters are a lot safer, I can tell you that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Early season, some of these outdoor, like Minnesota, Detroit, yeah. like they absolutely mm -hmm. should be using whatever it takes to make sure they don't beam it at somebody's head. Like I've never, right. Right. never understood that. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, obviously there's certain lines you don't cross, you don't use other stuff, but I think, you know, I think they do need to come up with something. They're, they're trying new baseballs um, that didn't go over real well. Um, but I think, I think a lot of times you need something a little bit more than rosin. Uh, that, that's just my opinion. Probably never going to happen, but that's what I have on it. Never know. They're adding and, you know, adding and yeah. subtracting rules every year. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I will bring my producer Ricky back in for a couple of last fun questions. Dave, this has been great, by the way. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Um, and Ricky. Dave, how's it going? Good, Ricky. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I got to say, first off, I'm a big Mets fan. And as a Mets fan, I just want to say thank you for two incredible years of Jacob DeGrom. Those, those were so fun to watch. And I'm just wondering if it was as fun to be in the dugout and kind of witness him dominate as it was for, as a fan to watch. Absolutely. And not only was it was it fun to work with him and to watch him pitch and watch him pitch, just a, a good guy. He was great to work with you know, on his side days. Uh, you know, in between days, he's not pitching. He's going to joke around with him, a great sense of humor. Uh, just a, a good man, good family man. It, it was a lot of it was a lot of fun being around Jake. Uh, 
really to watch him pitch, watch him compete. Um, again, very coachable, uh, wanted information. What do you got for me to make me better? And it was just a joy for those two years to be around him. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he was pretty easy to call pitches for it too. He's just dominating with everything. Yeah, and you know, there's other guys there. Zach Wheeler, you know, Zach Wheeler kind of turned his career around there the second half of 2018, and now we see what he's done in in uh, in Philly, which I'm sure doesn't make Mets fans, people like you, very happy to see what he's done. But um, yeah, there were a lot of good guys on that team, so um, I enjoyed my time there. Yeah, yeah, I wanted him back, but you know, it's not my decision to make. Um, I guess. With a similar time frame, but, you know, maybe a little bit of a sadder story, um, you were there kind of towards the end of the, the Matt Harvey run in, in Queens. I was kind of wondering, what was, what was that like to witness and watch and kind of what adjustments did you try to make with him that maybe didn't? Yeah, well, you know, what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to get him back to as close as the Matt Harvey before the injuries. I mean, let's, you know, he, not only did he have the Tommy John, he had, you know, he had the thoracic outlet yeah. syndrome. You know, so that's not as long as it's hard to come back from one of those, but he had to come back from both of them. And he could just never regain um, that velocity uh, that he had before those injuries. But, um, but he tried, he worked on it. You know, we tried to get him to maybe change his philosophy on how we pitch, you know, be more of a pitch, you know, command your fastball a little bit better. You know, and since you don't have the velocity, maybe pitch in a little bit more, but he was bound to determine he was going to to get back to the pitcher he was before those injuries. But unfortunately, he just ran out of time there. Yeah, it felt like towards the end, especially as a fan, he kind of just needed a fresh start. So you know, yeah. I was happy to see that mm -hmm. happen for him. Mm -hmm. um, but so now I know you talked about your agent work a little bit and how you're kind of on the agency side of the business. So with everything that's kind of going on right now with, with the big name free agents that still aren't signed, um, you know, Snell, Montgomery, Chapman, I was wondering what, what your perspective on, on this is with Scott Boras kind of being a little bit on the agent point of view and then also having your experience as a player and a coach? Well, I mean, now that I'm in this business, I, I, I really feel uncomfortable talking about other sure. agents. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm not an agent. I'm just the, the, the head of running operations part of this thing. Um, but I, Scott Boras has always tried to get the absolute best contract he, he could for all of his players. And if that means sitting them out, you know, in the spring training or all the way through spring training or, or whatever the case may be, he fights hard for his players and, 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 and he doesn't sign it. You know, they don't come to an agreement on a contract until he gets what he feels right for, for his players. And you have to respect that. What's mm -hmm. going on now with, with, with Snell and Montgomery and Chapman. I have no idea. Um, I would, I would venture to say, guess that, they won't be out too long. I mean, regular season's what month away now. Um, I've seen it time and time again, many times. If you don't have a full spring training, guys don't get to start off the year right, and sometimes they never gain traction, and, and it's a lost year. So, from a baseball perspective, and a person and, and a coach, you hope those guys, especially the pitchers, get signed soon so they can get in camp and get themselves ready for March 28th. Yeah. Season comes quick every year, almost a month yep. away now, which is crazy to think about. Right. Yeah. Okay. Also, when I when I was reading about you, I, I read somewhere that you were the body double for Kevin Costner in the nineteen ninety film for the love of the game, or nineteen ninety nine. Right, right. I was wondering just kind of how that happened and what that was like to be, you know, on set with such a star and, and that cool. Well, I mean, I was it was after the ninety eight season. I'm sitting at home. I mean, my obviously it was years ago, my daughters were young. I was getting them ready to go trick or treating. I got a phone call from you know, there were some players up there that were extras in that movie. And I guess Costner had a bad arm, had a hard time throwing. And, and some guys reckoned me to the, recommended me to the director and the producer. They called me up, wondering if I'd come up there and had nothing going on. I cleared it with my daughters and my wife, and they said, go ahead. So I went up to New York and was on, on set filming that for, for three weeks, the, the portion that was filmed in Yankee Stadium anyway. So I said I was his body double. I was the pitching double. I mean, anytime you saw the ball cross the plate – I probably threw that pitch because, like I said, his his arm was hanging and he had a hard time throwing. The, you know, his arm was injured. He had a hard time throwing the ball off the mound and in velocity on it. So I threw a lot of the pitches for him, um, even though he says he threw every pitch in that movie. I can tell you, no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was fun. I mean, it, it was fun. I mean, obviously one of the one of the greatest actors in our generation, right? I mean, yeah. arguably and. You know, John C. Riley was up there. The late Kelly Preston was in that movie. So um, it was it was a wonderful experience. Um, 
I tell you what, those are long days. Those are long days, you know, 14, 15 hour days. But the one thing, the one thing they can do that professional baseball players can do, they can reshoot the scene. Make yeah. you, you have do overs as many as you need to get it right. And obviously in baseball, we all know you don't have that luxury. You get to uh, did you get to go to the, the red carpet and do any of that fun stuff? Or nah, no, I was I was in, when they had that when they had the premiere the, the next spring or summer. I was playing for Tampa Bay at the time, and I was entrenched in being the best pitcher I could be. So nah, I don't think I'm a red carpet carpet type of guy anyway. Oh, I'm sure it would have been fun. Um, okay, and then then my last question, um, you were you hold a very interesting and unique accolade within the history of the MLB, being the only player to ever hit a home run in your first at bat and give up a home run in your first, in, in your first uh, appearance on the mound. I was wondering yeah, if you, you're aware of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm aware of it. I mean, it didn't happen in the same game, obviously it was back yeah. uh, 1988. My major league debut was when Milwaukee was still in the American league. Uh, probably before you guys were born back in 88. The first hitter I faced was uh, Paul Molitor. You know, I got him, got him to one, two. I, I hung a slider. I probably should have thrown the sweeper, right? I hung the slider, Just, hung the one, hung yeah. the one, two slider to him in a home, solo home run. I only gave up one more hit the rest of that game. I came out with a three to one lead after seven innings, and we ended up losing. The bullpen came in and gave up the runs, ended up losing the game. And then, uh, fast forward four years later, 1992, my first start was with San Diego, with, with the Padres at the time. My first start of the year against the Dodgers in early April. My first at bat facing Bobby Ojeda threw me a 2-2 fastball. I knew he wasn't going to throw a curveball 2-2 uh, to go 3-2 on a pitcher, so I was ready for a fastball. And I, I hit it well and went out of the park, so that was my home run. Yeah. Did you ever get to uh, talk a little smack to Bobby O when he was at – if he was at Mets spring training? No, or... no. I had too much respect for Bobby to do that. I mean, listen, I've given up enough home runs to the other guys, so I'm not, I'm not going to talk smack to the one I hit off of, off of somebody. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. If it was me, I'd be screaming that from the rooftops, but <laughs> no. That's not me. no, no, that's not me. No. I love it. Th Dave, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for, for giving us an hour tonight. It really means a lot. Um, and, you know, best of luck and continued success with your work now with Grand Central Sports Management. You guys are crushing it over there. Uh, and like I said, dude, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And GCSportsManagement.com. Check us out. Got some good things going on there. And before we get out of here, a special thank you to the band Stick Figure for allowing us to use today's intro and outro music. So